Hello, and welcome to Kazungram Dialogue, a podcast dedicated to having honest conversations on the issues most important to life and to our culture. You can find us online at kazungram.com. That's K-A-Z-I-N-G-R-A-M.com. We hope you enjoy this episode. Be sure to like and subscribe. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Amos Dober with the introduction. Our guest today is Gavin Kerr. Gavin is a lecturer in philosophy at St. Patrick's College, Maynooth, Ireland. He's an author, a third-order Dominican, and a martial artist. In this episode, we talk about Aquinas' proof of the existence of God from being and essence, the nature of God, epistemological realism, and the integration of philosophy with life. Please welcome Gavin to the Kuzingram Dialogue. Gordon, Gavin, thank you so much for being with us and joining us. No, it's all it's always a pleasure to do these things. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. We've been big fans of your work. <laughs> right, okay. That, that's always nice to hear. Thank you. Yeah. Um I think we I, I came across you your work in probably like in late twenty fifteen or maybe early twenty sixteen when you released your book. Uh-huh. Uh, Aquinas Aquinas Ways. Uh, what what is it called? Ways Aquinas' way to God. Aquinas' way. To Aquinas' God. way to God. That's right. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, ever since then, I've you know we both of us, Amos and I, have both read multiple all your uh, academic articles, and it's very good stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. Right, right. That first book has a real interesting story behind it, the way it was written. Oh yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Do, do you just want to hear it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, the, the, the thing was about it, I had focused on a lot of that material in my postgraduate research. So my master's thesis was on the distinction of essence and existence. And when I completed my doctorate, I um, was kind of, I, I knew I had to publish and I thought, maybe somebody should, you know, have a look at that proof of God from the Deente. Mm. And I was kind of, you know, just doing sort of adjunct sort of work here and there. I, I didn't really have a position anywhere. So I was kind of running between these, you know, sort of different classes. You know, my wife was, she was working, um, she was becoming a therapist, a counselor. And my first son was, you know, still quite small. So between all of that, I, I was sitting at home, you know, looking after my son, furiously sort of typing up this, manuscript on a tiny little sort of laptop computer and you know meanwhile my son you know just still you know needing an awful lot of of attention and everything so there was times I was sitting holding him with one hand typing with the other and um, I think it was about that time that I started getting addicted to monster energy drinks you know so they got me through the whole situation (laughs) and um, yeah yeah and then submitted at the Oxford and I wasn't really expecting too much from it, to, to be honest. And then just, it was around about Easter time. I think uh, Easter time, sort of 2014, um, Oxford got back to me and says, yeah, they were happy to publish it. And I freaked out. I kind of was, I was nearly sick when I got the email and I ran up and started screaming at my wife. So that's, that's the kind of story behind it, you know, it was a, so it was all a bit of a kind of a, a roller coaster for me. Mm. Okay. And where, what was it that you did your doctoral work on? Uh, yes, yeah, so um, I, I went to Queen's University, Belfast, and um, there, there was a scholar there, uh, James McAvoy, Reverend Professor James McAvoy. He had taught in, in Leuven, in Belgium, 
Uh, he had taught at St. Patrick's College, Maynooth, and then he was back at Queen's University. And he specialised in the thought of Robert Grosteste, um, some medieval scholar translated uh, Aristotle from Greek into Latin. And um, I, I kind of worked with him in my master's on essence and existence in Aquinas. But when I got him a doctorate, he always knew he was interested in epistemology. Um, and when I got him a doctorate, he suggested, I, I initially wanted to sort of work on Aquinas and goodness and the whole idea of participation. Uh, but he suggested maybe you might want to think about looking at defending domestic realism within a post-Kantian philosophical environment. Mm. Um, and during my master's studies, I was really interested in this, but he had never really indicated that he would be interested in supervising me for that particular issue. Um, and I thought, you know, this is a dream come true. You know, he wants me to, you know, sort of work in epistemology for, for, my, uh, for my doctorate. So I was great. So I, I got onto that. And what I ended up doing is I, 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 I did out a thesis looking at Aquinas' metaphysical thought and the notion in his thinking that um, action is a self-revelation of the being of the thing. So the way in which I act is a revelation of my individualized being. Um, so whenever um, an object impacts upon some sort of subject so that um, it's revealed to the subject, what's revealed in its action on a subject is the object's being, which is individuated to its essence. Uh, and that's, a, that's an argument that I found in William Norris Clark um, in a paper of his, in that book of his, uh, Explorations in Metaphysics. So I developed that and I tied it in with Lonergan's thinking from Insight and I developed an argument against um, Kant and the Critique of Pure Reason. Kant is a philosopher that um, I really came to enjoy and respect uh, over in my studying and as a Thomist I kind of think about Kant the way I do about Plato there's there's something that I think is just profound in his thinking but at the crucial points I think he just gets things wrong so I have that sort of attitude towards Kant and towards Plato so I came to really enjoy Kant and, and respect Kant and I, I, I engaged with Kant so much in the department of Queens that at the time I was the only uh, Kant scholar there. I was the only one with sufficient expertise in Kant, so much so that when they needed somebody to teach the Kant section of the history of philosophy, they came to me, who was writing a thesis to try and show that Kant was wrong in the critique of pure reason. <laughs> uh, but that, that, that's what the thesis was about, and that's what, um, that's what I did the doctoral studies on. My, my, my postdoctoral sort of research is focused more on the metaphysics. I've published a few wee articles on epistemological issues, but I've never published the whole um, thesis. Um, I'm thinking after the, the sort of next re research project I'm engaged in, I might return to the thesis and work it up into something which is publishable. So, mm. is it yeah. okay when it comes to when it comes to publishing with uh, some uh, publishers like Oxford? How what is the process like for those who've never published before? Mm. Yeah, yeah. See, that's something that nobody ever tells you that when you're a student. Yeah. You see these people publishing, and you know, um, usually what happens is you're kind of apprenticed to you know a supervisor, you know, who looks after you, and he kind of shows you the ropes, he or she. Um, but it, it's not anything which is really in the public domain. Um, my, my supervisor passed away before I was, you know, out there in the field, as it were. So I kind of had to find all out all these things just with a what what we call over here a bit of a brass neck. I, I kind of just you know, emailed people and asked, you know, how, how do we do this? Uh, with, with my first book with um, Oxford, 
what I did is uh, I contacted Brian Davies. Um, you, there's probably no Brian Davies, yeah. Um, and I said, you know, look, I've kind of written this manuscript and, you know, I followed your work and I'm wondering, you know, could you give me some advice on where you think I should send it? You know, Oxford is obviously a really good publisher. Um, maybe I should send it there. And so he says he would have a read of it for me. And he read it and in a couple of days he, he says he thought it was excellent and, so he recommended getting in contact with um, people at Oxford in New York, and he suggested a commissioning editor, and I got in contact with this commissioning editor. Mm-hmm. And um, usually what pub- publishers have, big publishing houses that publish books, they, if you go onto their website, there's usually a link for authors, and that'll give you details of what they expect in the process of submitting a manuscript to them so usually they have some sort of questionnaire asking you you know how does this contribute to the field how does it stand with other work and stuff like that and you fill that out and if, you, if you've got a good idea for a book usually it's straightforward enough to fill it out and uh, the real hurdle is when the referees get it so the referees get it on blind um, review and they'll get it and they'll read it and they'll, they'll decide basically if it's worthy of publication and you know if, if they have the say so and um, they think it's worthy and it's going to contribute to the field, then the publishers can be very supportive. And um, after that, then it's, it's just a matter of getting the completed manuscript to them. They'll have their readers who go through it, checking for the likes of grammar and style and stuff like that. And then, you know, you just go through the mechanical processes of getting it published. Um, does, that, does that address your question with the likes of publishing a book? Mm-hmm. And what, what is the, um, how long does it usually take to publish? Yeah, yeah. So um, uh, in, in both my cases, uh, with the case of my two books, it took about a year um, from submission of the final draft of the manuscript to actually seeing it in hard copy. So whenever, uh, whenever I got my contract um, for, for, for both publications, whenever I got my contract, um, they asked, when do you think you can have this, uh, the, the final manuscript to us? Um, and I said, look, it, it's, it's completed anyway, so um, let's say a couple of months just to go and tidy up anything. Um, so uh, I, after a few months, that um, I gave them the final manuscript. Then it, it, just, it just took about a year for everybody to go through everything, to have the, the proofs put together, to do the index. Um, you can choose to do the index yourself, or you can get somebody to do the index. On both occasions, um, I chose to do the index myself. Um, I think just because I'm a wee bit overprotective. Um, so uh, I did that. Regretted it on both occasions. So completely regretted it on both occasions. <laughs> index. I mean, if you're writing on Aquinas' metaphysics and you have to do an index entry for being, um, yeah, it's, it's yeah. You know, tedious stuff. But yeah, it, t- it takes about a year and there's just lots of, of different steps. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's a great experience. Mm-hmm. So you, your first book was about... Um, Aquinas' existential proof for the existence of God in the yeah. Deinte et Ascentia. Uh, yeah. do you, would you mind just telling us a bit about that, just for the sake of our listeners? Yeah, yeah, of course. So this was a proof of God that uh, Aquinas um, put forth in that little work, the Deinte et Ascentia. It's one of Aquinas' early works, along there with um, his little work on the principles of nature, De Principis Naturae. Um, and the Deinte et on being in essence, it was written by Thomas for his fellow Dominicans who were, who were living at St. Jacques and they were studying philosophy, theology at the University of Paris. And, you know, Thomas would have been kind of, you know, 
you know, older than them, more advanced than them. And so they, they'd obviously approached him to ask him for, for something to help him through with their studies in metaphysics. Um, so he writes the De Antiadescentia, um, about five chapters, about 30 pages in most editions. Um, uh, and he writes that in his early 30s. So in his early 30s, he writes this little metaphysical gem um, and he has this proof of God in it uh, in chapter four in most editions. Uh, and then chapter four, he, what he does is he does two things. First of all, he articulates the, the, this famous distinction between essence and existence, which is just the backbone of his thinking. It just remains throughout um, his thought. And if you've understood this distinction, you've more or less you know, got to the heart of Aquinas' metaphysics. Everything falls into place after that. So he articulates the distinction between essence and existence. Then on the basis of that, he articulates the proof of God. So just on the distinction between essence and existence, the issue that he's dealing with, he's dealing with essence, what it, what it is to be a thing. So the, so the whatness or the definition of a thing, what a thing is, that's what he's been dealing with up to that point, the essence of things. And he's asking himself, well, look, Let's just say you had an immaterial essence, like an angel or a pure form or something like that. So let's think, let's say we had one of those. Would it be pure actuality? Would it be purely actual? Or would there be some element of potency to it? And he thinks, well, it, it couldn't be pure actuality then, because if you had just some sort of, you know, immaterial essence, like an angel, like, you know, Michael or Gabriel or Raphael or whoever, um, then if that was pure actual, pure actuality, it would be God. Um, but angels aren't God, you know, immaterial substances aren't God. So there has to be some sort of element of potency to it. Um, so what philosophers at the time had suggested is that even though these substances are immaterial, they have um, a, a special kind of matter called incorporeal matter. So it's matter which isn't corporeal. Material things, typical, typical mundane material things that we see around us, they have corporeal matter. And then these, you know, immaterial substances, if there are any, they would have incorporeal matter. And that accounts for their potentiality, their potency. So famously, Aristotle held that, you know, um, uh, composite substances are composites of matter and form, potency and act. And so the matter of the thing accounts for its potency, its potentiality, its ability to change. And so what a Thomas is addressing here then is whether or not matter is the principle of potency or is there some more fundamental principle of potency? And so his way of thinking into that is to think about these, you know, hypothetical immaterial substances. So as I say, there were philosophers who thought, well, there's this kind of matter which is incorporeal matter. So it's matter which isn't bodily, but it's still matter. And so that accounts for the potentiality of immaterial substances. Thomas just thinks this is absurd and it's ad hoc. They're, they're kind of just making up these distinctions and there's no basis for a distinction between corporeal or incorporeal matter. He thinks that if we're going to be committed to immaterial substances, separate substances, we have to be committed to their full immateriality. And if that causes a problem for how we would distinguish it between them and God, well, so be it. We just have to think that through and see if we can resolve that without reverting to sort of ad hoc scenarios of, you know, corporeal and incorporeal matter. So what Thomas does then, he tries to, you know, to, he bites the bullet and he says, yeah, we do have a problem here. You know, they are immaterial, uh, but they're not pure actuality. They have an element of potency to them. And that element of potency is not rooted in matter. It's rooted in the potentiality that their essences or the essence of an immaterial thing has towards the act of existence. 
So it has a potentiality to exist. So what he goes on to argue then is that there's a distinction between essence and existence in things, such that things are composites of essence and existence. And the whole point, the whole metaphysical teaching there is that there is a more fundamental level of potentiality, even more fundamental than matter, which Aristotle didn't even envisage. And then there's a more fundamental level of actuality, which actuates that more fundamental potency. The more fundamental level of actuality then is the act of existence. So you can have immaterial substances with an essence which isn't material, but that essence still stands in potency to an act of existence, which uh, Thomas uses the term essay for that, the Latin term essay for it. So prior to the demonstration of God's existence, he argues for this distinction between essence and existence. So he has you know, several arguments for that. And then he gets to this argument for God's existence. Um, do you want me to pause there for a minute or will, will I go on? Go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, okay, go ahead. okay. <laughs> so um, he gets to this sort of argument for God's existence and this is immediately after he uh, makes this distinction between essence and existence. And he, he says, look, let, let's take things that exist, okay? Uh, they have certain characteristics and the characteristics that they have, they either have them as a result of their intrinsic principles or as a result of some extrinsic principle. So for instance, you take the ability to laugh, this is Thomas's example, take the ability to laugh in a man. A man is able to laugh because he is a rational animal. So his, his ability to laugh, his risability, stems from his being a rational animal. He's able to see something that's funny, understand it, and so laughs, you know, has a sense of humor. Um, that's something which is a result of his intrinsic principles, i.e. his essence how his matter and form have come together to produce that ration, uh, rational animal. So the ability to laugh as a characteristic that a man has comes from some sort of intrinsic principle. But on the other hand, um, if you take uh, the atmosphere and the illumination of the atmosphere, again, this is uh, Thomas's example, the atmosphere is illuminated not by itself. It doesn't illuminate itself. So it's not from anything intrinsic to the atmosphere by which it's illuminated, say the gases and the molecules and all of that. Rather, there's some extrinsic principle of illumination, which is, let's say, the sun. So the sun illuminates the atmosphere, and the atmosphere participates in the illumination that the sun gives it. And that's an extrinsic principle. So with that in place, Thomas then holds, well, look, we can look at things, and we can look at the characteristics of things, and we can ask, you know, are those characteristics a result of their intrinsic nature, or some extrinsic principle. And he asks, well, we've just established that essence and existence are distinct in things. Is existence a result of some intrinsic nature or extrinsic principle? So existence as a characteristic, distinct characteristic, is it a result of the intrinsic nature of a thing or some extrinsic principle? Well, we've already shown that existence is distinct from essence, so it can't be a result of the essence of the thing in the way that the ability to laugh in man is the result of man's essence, his rational animality. So existence has to be a result of some extrinsic principle, the way that the, the, the atmosphere is illuminated by the sun. Mm. So that sets Thomas up into a causal regress. If you have the existence of essence, existence composites caused in some sort of way by an extrinsic principle, well then we set up this chain, you know, one essence existence composite causes the existence of another, which causes the existence of another, and so on and so forth. And we get the typical sort of causal chains then that we have in demonstrations of God's existence. So what Thomas needs to do then 
is to argue that the causal chain in which existence is the property being caused terminates in some sort of primary cause. And so what I did in the book then is um, Thomas, um, he gives a sort of a nod to the sort of arguments he would make to why that sort of chain of causes terminates in a primary, but he doesn't kind of really go into it in depth. And what I sort of did in the book is that I kind of borrowed some of my earlier material publications that I'd written on this, where explored Thomas's different kinds of causal chains and how he thinks certain causal chains uh, will always terminate in some sort of primary cause. Um, and so we, would you like me to go through that now, just to finish out the argument? Yeah, go for it. Uh, yeah, sure. And then we'll ask some okay. questions. <laughs> okay, cool, cool. So um, generally in his work, in, uh, in, in accordance with the, the medieval philosophers in general, Thomas distinguishes between two kinds of causal chain. There's a kind of causal chain called a per accidents causal chain or an accidentally ordered chain. And there's a kind of causal chain uh, called a per se or essentially ordered causal chain. The terminology of accidentally ordered and essentially ordered, uh, that, that's from John Don Scotus. Um, Thomas uses the terminology of per se and per accidents. And then later, um, Edward Fieser, he uses the terminology of a hierarchical chain to designate per se chain. They're all talking about the same sort of distinction. Mm -hmm. For Thomas, the distinction between a per se causal chain and a per accidents causal chain is that in per accidents causal chains, so accidentally ordered series of causes, the members of the series possess the causality of the series in themselves. They have that causality of the series in virtue of what they are. Whereas in per se or essentially ordered chains, the members of the series don't have the causality of the series in virtue of what they are, but they're dependent on something distinct from themselves for that causality. The best way to, to kind of exhibit this is with uh, the two examples Thomas uses. So um, one example of a per accidents causal chain is a series of fathers producing sons. So a father produces a son who produces a son who produces a son. Okay, so you've got this sort of causal chain set up. So Peter uh, begets um, James and James begets John. So you've got Peter, James and John. Peter is the father of James. He's the grandfather of John. James is the father of John. Now in that series, Peter, James, and John, the causal property in question, let's call it paternity or begetting or something like that, the, the ability to produce a son. Peter has the ability to produce his son, James, in virtue of what he is, i.e. a biologically functioning male of the human species. So he's able to produce a son because he is that. That's, that, that, that's something intrinsic to him. Other factors obviously need to be in place. He needs to find you know, a suitable mate, fertility, and everything that needs to happen to produce a son. But an essential condition is that he has this causality in virtue of what he is. So he can produce genes. And in producing genes, then, we have a new member of the series who is also a biologically functioning male who's capable of producing his own son, who is John. Now... What uh, the medievals in general and Thomas uh, recognized here is that insofar as the members of the series have the causality of the series in themselves, previous members of the series can drop out of the series, but the series can keep on going. So Peter can produce James and Peter can die. James can grow up and James can produce John without Peter's help. James's ability to produce John, i.e. to give Peter a grandson, is not dependent on Peter's concurrent presence there in the system. 
with James. As I say, you know, there, I mean, James could be born and Peter could go out and have a drink to celebrate the birth of his son and die tragically, but yet James is still able to continue the series of fathers producing sons. Indeed, James doesn't need Peter's help to produce his own son, John. Just think about how that would work. It would be weird if James needed Peter to help him produce his own son, John. Yeah. What, that, what that indicates is that Peter isn't the cause of John. He's not the cause of his grandson. James is the cause of John, who is Peter's grandson. And so, abstracting a little bit to look at the metaphysics of the series then, what we can say is that insofar as the members of such series have the causality in the series themselves, as long as you always have a prior member for each member in the series, there's no need for a primary cause. Okay, so that, that, that series can be without a beginning, so long as you always have a prior member, because there's nothing left to be explained about the series, since every member of the series has the causality of the series and simply passes it on the one to the other. So, mm -hmm. Thomas, very happy, such series are potentially infinite. Uh, they may only be actually finite, but they're potentially infinite. So they could just be actually finite, such that you have one member causes a new one, that member drops out, the new member causes the next member, that member drops out, and so on and so on and so on. So as the, the series succeeds, previous members disappear, but new members keep coming in, and so it's only actually finite, but potentially infinite. On the other hand, we have per se causal series or essentially ordered series, and in these sorts of series, the members of the series don't possess the causality of the series in question. The traditional example of which is usually given is the mental agent, however you want to take mental agency, but the mental agent um, moves the hands to move the stick to move the stone, or if you want to translate it into modern terms, you know, the golf player moves his hands to move a golf club to move the golf ball, and in non-conscious situations, the fire heats the pot to heat the, to heat the contents of the pot. So if we take the, the, the mind, hand, stick and stone series, the hands, the stick, and the stone are immobile in themselves. They don't have the, 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 the mobility which is induced to the series by the mind in virtue of what they are, but they depend on the mental agent for, for their mobility. They would be causally inefficacious without the mental agent to grant them the motion of the series. And that's a crucial distinction between that sort of series and the per-accident series. In the per-accident series, the fathers and sons, they have the causality of the series in virtue of what they are. But in per-se series, the members of the series, the hand, stick, and stone, they don't have the causality of the series in virtue of what they are. So if there is no primary cause which gives them their causal efficacy, they would be causally inefficacious. You remove the mental agent, then the hands, the stick, and the stone don't move unless you have some sort of other cause of motion. Or in the fire uh, pot and contents of the pot example, you remove the fire, then the, the pot and the contents um, immediately begin to cool. They're no longer being needed. And what that tells us then is that a primary cause in per se series is a cause which possesses the causality of the series in virtue of what it is. So it possesses it intrinsically, um, whereas the posterior members of the series, the hand, the stick, and the stone, let's say, they don't have the causality of the series in virtue of what they are, but they participate in the primary cause, which does so possess the causality of the series. And, you know, the, the examples are fairly innocuous. So, so the, the mental agents moving the hand, the stick, and the stone, or the fire, heating the pot, heating the contents of the pot. Now, Thomas takes these two different types of series, one of which 
must terminate in a primary. Otherwise, you don't have a causal series in question. There's no causal efficacy in the series. The other of which doesn't need to terminate in any sort of first cause. And he asks about the causal series in which existence is the causal property. So we have a causal series in which um, you have essence, existence, composites being caused in their existence. And the question is, is that a causal series which is like our father-son series, a per accident series? Or is it a causal series like the per se series, like the hand, stick and stone series? And Thomas argues, well, look, the way in which we distinguish these series is we ask, are the, do the members of the series possess the causality, essentially, in virtue of what they are? Or do they possess it as something distinct from their essences and derived? Well, we've established that essence and existence are distinct, and that existence is a feature that things have, not in virtue of what they are, but as a result of some extrinsic principle. So when it comes to the causality of existence or existence as a property in causal series, the kind of causal series that we're dealing with is the essentially ordered or the per se kind, such that if there were no primary cause, which had the causality of the series in itself, i.e. existence in this case, so if there were no primary cause, which has existence essentially, or whose essence is its existence, then none of the other members of the series, none of the essence existence composites, would have the causality of the series, i.e. they wouldn't have existence. But such things do have existence, in which case there must be a primary cause for such existence, a cause whose essence is its existence, in which everything participates then, in order to be like the, uh, like the atmosphere participating in the illumination um, from the sun. Uh, and this is, what, this is what we take God to be then, so the primary cause without which nothing would exist. Does so that, that, that's a perceive of the argument and how the argument goes. Okay. Does it matter if, if it turns out that the universe has existed infinitely? Does it affect the argument for the existence of God in any sort of way? Yeah, that, that's a really interesting question because Thomas was notorious for defending uh, the, the, the possibility of, a, of an eternal universe, that the universe could have existed without a beginning. And um, Stephen Hawking, in his book, A Brief History of Time, kind of enters into this foray, obviously not with the, the, the philosophical background in mind, but he enters into the foray saying that given his account of how the laws of the universe work, there, there are no boundary conditions, whilst the universe is finite, there are no boundary conditions between, you know, the universe and nothing. So there's no, technically there's no beginning to the universe, uh, given how he construes, you know, how uh, the Big Bang occurs and how the, the laws of physics work. Um, so the universe is without a beginning, in which case Hawking argues it's without a cause. This is something that uh, Thomas had already dealt with in the 13th century, and he held that even though the universe could be without a beginning, that doesn't mean it's without a cause. And this is precisely because however you construe the universe, you know, is just a conglomeration of lots of different, you know, substances or is one big substance in itself. Um, it's still dependent for existence. Things within the universe would not be unless they depended on something whose essence is its existence. That's how the argument goes. So the primary cause for the existence of things is something whose essence is its existence. The universe isn't that because um, the universe, you know, involves materiality, involves dependence on matter, in which case it subsists in matter. It doesn't subsist in virtue of what it is, and so it doesn't exist in virtue of what it is. Um, so the universe and everything in it is, again, subject to essence existence composition, so that even if it didn't have a beginning, it would still be dependent for its existence. Uh, it would be like 
um, something depending, being dependent, but have nothing um, on which to depend if there were no sort of primary cause, even for a beginningless universe. Right. Does that address yes. your question? Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Yeah, so if, if someone were to say, well, why, why don't we just say that the universe is identical to being itself? Mm. How, mm. how would you go about responding to that? Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's something that's kind of, you know, it comes up uh, just prior to, to, to when Thomas makes the argument for God, when he's outlining the distinction between essence and, and existence. And um, one of the arguments where he's considering, you know, what if we had something which was just pure existence itself, something whose essence is its existence? Could it be material? Mm -hmm. Thomas argues it couldn't, because anything which is material um, subsists in its matter. So I'm a material thing. I subsist in my matter. If something happens to my matter, the matter that I, you know, kind of subsist in, something happens to me. So once my matter decomposes, I'm dead. I'm gone. That's the end of me. So material things subsist in the matter that they have. But that which is pure existence itself, something whose essence is its existence, it doesn't subsist in anything but itself. So it's, it subsists is simply in its essence and so exists in virtue of what it is. Whereas things which are material subsist in their matter, which is distinct from them and is a component of them. So um, one couldn't identify the universe with being itself or with the primary cause whose essence is its existence, precisely because such a primary cause subsists um, in its essence where it's, the universe doesn't. Is it is it possible with um, so in terms of uh, pure actuality as God, you know, God is pure act. Could there be more than one pure actuality? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So again, uh, in, in the same place where you know, sort of Thomas deals with that issue of whether you know this being could be material. He, he he's actually dealing the, the the larger issue there as whether or not there could, it could be multiplied in any way. So the question then is whether or not you could have something some sort of nature which, whose essence is its existence and whether there could be more than one of them. Well, Thomas asks then, how, how could it be multiplied? You know, what, what, what sort of principle of purification or multiplication could you use to multiply it? So say, for example, you know, we, we take, say, human nature. It's multiplied by being received into, you know, different chunks of matter. So you've got all the, you know, the six billion humans in the world. They all have the same one nature, but it's multiplied by being received into distinct chunks of matter. Um, or you take, say, like a genus, like animal, and it's multiplied into its various species by the addition of some differentiating feature, rational animality, equine animality, canine animality, that sort of thing. In both cases, in order to have multiplication, you have to introduce something outside of the thing to which the subject for multiplication to be multiplied. So if you have multiple instances of things, you have something that is subject to some sort of principle by which it is instantiated or by which it is multiplied. But if you have something whose essence is its existence, it's pure existence. There's nothing independent of it to which it stands as subject. Everything else stands as subject to it and in potency to it uh, and dependent on it for its actual for, for their actuality, whereas it is dependent on nothing for its actuality. So there's literally nothing outside of it which can multiply it, in which case, it, in principle, it could not be multiplied. So is it... Okay, so with the distinctions of es distinction of essence and... Um, uh, essence and... Ex the essence and existence... Yeah. 
do you think that Thomas accomplishes it when he's in the Dante when he's talking about okay let's imagine that there's um uh the phoenix and then the I forget what the other creature he used was and the human mm-hmm. and then he goes through this thought experiments and says look you can you can conceive of what a uh, a phoenix is and you can conceive of what a man is mm-hmm. and so if you but you but your conception you 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 conceiving of it doesn't mean that it exists in reality which mm-hmm. I agree with uh, but I think if I recall, you don't, you don't think that Thomas actually accomplishes that distinction in the ante, do you? I don't think he accomplishes it at that point of the Deante. So there, there, there's, a, there's two arguments um, pertaining to the distinction. Um, one follows immediately after the other. The first one, the one that you talk about there, that's the, the intellectus essentiae argument. And it's basically whatever doesn't enter into the understanding of an essence or a quiddity is distinct from it and composed with it from without. Uh, this is because if we're understand, if we're trying to understand the essence of something, we need to understand its parts. And so best case scenario, we, he's assuming best case scenario, we have a true understanding of the thing. Um, we can understand the essence of anything without understanding its existence. So I can understand the essence of a phoenix, which doesn't exist. I can also understand the essence of a man, which does exist. That doesn't mean that I've understood that, you know, phoenixes or men actually exist. I've just understood some sort of definitional content. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he says, well, look, you know, essence and existence are distinct. Um, I argue the way I interpret that, and it, it's, a, it's a really sort of old issue in Thomas studies, um, how, how, what's the force of that argument? Some people hold that because Thomas is thinking about real, actual things, he is considering how it is we understand distinct metaphysical components of real, actual things. So it's one thing to understand the essence of an actual thing in front of me. It's another thing to understand that that thing actually exists. Um, the way I interpret that argument in the De Ente is that Thomas is distinguishing between how we think about things. He's not making distinctions about the things about which we actually think. So it's still an open question whether or not the actual object in reality is subject to distinction of essence and existence. But so far as at that stage of the day, he's only shown that our intellectual operations, which pick out essence and existence, are distinct. But that doesn't automatically transfer into reality. But it's at the immediately following stage um, where I hold Thomas does establish distinction of essence and existence. Uh, And I'm in a minority here, so I just need to hold my hands up. I'm a minority. Myself and John Whipple, I think, are the only two, so far as I know, who think it happens at this stage. And I'm happy about that. You know, the fight narration, all that, I'll stand up for myself. Um, But it's at this next stage where Thomas says, look, you take the hypothesis of, a, of something whose essence is its existence. Just think about that. Um, it could only be one. It would have to be unique. And that was some of the argumentation we were just talking about a minute ago, that there would be nothing outside of it which can multiply it. So it would be absolutely unique. There could only be one, regardless of whether it exists. And the inference then to be made from that is that if at most there could only be one being whose essence is its existence. Well, regardless of whether that exists, if we've got multiple beings, they are not that being, i.e. they're not a being in which essence and existence are identical. So if at most you've got only one being whose essence is its existence, then regardless of whether it actually exists, in everything else, essence and existence are distinct. So if we have real multiple things, then in those real multiple things, there's distinction of essence and existence. So I think it's established there and then um, with, that's called the impossibility of multiplication. 
argument. Is is Thomas when he's talking about the when he when you're saying that there there could be only one whose yeah. essence is identical to its uh, existence? Are you talking about numerical oneness, or are you talking about something else? Are you talking about oneness in terms of like unity? Um, well, yeah, unity is involved um, insofar as you know that this being would be absolutely simple, but also numerical oneness insofar as as um, there is no other being at all whose essence is its existence. So there is literally only one such being. So it is absolutely simple and there, there is only one, but it's not in the sense that it's one of a kind in the sense, like, you know, we would talk about say the last man on earth or something like that, because given that this being is something whose essence is its existence, it's absolutely simple. It has no potency to it. So there's no composition to it. It's pure actuality. And so if it's absolutely simple, there's no distinction and composition in it of the individual that it is and the nature that it has. So in things like ourselves, we are individuals, but we're individuals of a certain nature. So the technical term is that we are supposites or some sort of nature. We're individuals of human nature. So even if there was only one person the one human being left in the whole world, um, we would still be an instance of human nature. But it's not the case with this being whose essence is its existence, that it's some sort of instance of a nature or the only instance of a nature or the unique instance of a nature. Let's say, you know, let's call it God and let's, you know, pretend that it's instancing deity or godhood or something like that. Thomas denies that. Thomas doesn't think that you know um, that you know God is the only instance of some sort of divine nature. Rather, God simply is identical to the divine nature, which is pure existence itself. So this is summed up in the formula of whatever is in God is God. So God's numerical oneness or unity is simply that there is nothing else that could be like God. Um, the only thing that could be like God is God or the divine essence. And God is absolutely one insofar as God is absolutely simple. How, how does it um, how does it square with uh, so in the Summa Contra Gentile, Thomas talks Thomas is uh, responding to the um, Islamic uh, criticisms of, of of Christians worshiping you know three uh, the Trinity and they're saying oh look at you're worshiping three gods you're, it's tritheistic not a monotheist again Thomas makes a point that. Well, yes, if you understood God as one numerically, then we all have a problem. And mm. so does that, so when you say oneness numerically, you just, are you, are you more so saying that there is nothing like pure act as opposed to there's one pure act or is it, yeah, is it the yeah. same thing? Yeah, yeah. So the, the, the first formula that, that there's nothing that is like to be pure act other than being pure actuality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, would you like me to address that the, the, the tritheism with the Trinity business, or? Yeah, I was just—I was actually just about to ask you about that. Yeah, yeah, okay. So, um, so this is into sort of well, I mean, Thomas's Trinitarian theology, and so um, Thomas, he's Catholic, he's Christian. So you know, three divine persons, um, one divine nature, and. Um, so he, he follows all you know, the church councils, the, 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 the Trinitarian Christological councils, which, you know, set up that understanding of the three divine persons. Uh, and the thing about church councils is that you, got, you have these good theologians contributing to them, uh, but the councils pronounce on a matter of dogma, what, what one needs to believe in order to be a Catholic, whereas it's the systematic theologians that have to kind of take that apart and show how that's explicable. 
uh, and the high lats open to human reason because um, for Thomas, at least being a Catholic, um, all the dogmas of the faith um, are explicable in terms of human reason, but not, they're not all demonstrable. So we can't demonstrate the Trinity or the Incarnation or something like that, but we can give an explanation or, or way of understanding it by means of reason. And that's what he thinks about the Trinity, that we can understand the divine Trinity, even if we can't prove that God must be triune, whereas we can prove that so you know God must exist and that God is one, intelligent, and all the rest. So in the Summa Theology, I think the best place where he does this is the Summa Theology, I round about question 25 or 26, just after he's finished dealing with what we can know philosophically about God, then he moves into what has been revealed about God in Revelation, and he sees how that squares with what we can know philosophically. So when we get to this point, we've, he, he's demonstrated all the typical you know, att divine attributes of classical theism, oneness, unity, simplicity, intelligence, will, goodness, all, all of that stuff. Um, and he gets into the issue of um, these three divine persons. And the first thing he asks is whether or not you can have what's called a procession within the divine essence. So can there be any kind of procession? And he distinguishes between two kinds of perception. There are perceptions that are ad extra, or there are perceptions which go outside of the thing, mm -hmm. and there are perceptions which remain within the thing. So perceptions which go, which go outside of the thing, um, as memory serves me, it's been about five or six years since I kind of looked and taught this stuff, but as memory serves me, the example is kind of like, if you take a stamp and you put that stamp on wax, like so you take a seal and you put the seal on wax, that's a procession that goes outside of itself and leaves an imprint outside of itself. Um, and that's kind of a causal perception. Perception, you've got cause going to effect. But there's also an internal procession, which is proper to an intellectual nature, where an idea can proceed in your mind, and it doesn't go out of your mind, but remains within your mind. So the idea which or the thought which proceeds in your mind is distinct from your mind insofar as it proceeds from your mind, but it doesn't go outside, okay? So it doesn't leave any sort of external imprint um, the way cause and effect would. Uh, it remains within your mind, and it has the same nature as your mind. So the thought and the mind are both intellectual in essence. Um, and Thomas says, well, this sort of procession can happen in God. God can, God is intelligent. He, you know, that's why there's a demonstration for that earlier in the Summa. So God can think. And what God thinks about is that God doesn't think about anything other than himself because there's nothing other than himself for him to think about other than what he has created. So God simply thinks about himself. So God has a single thought which understands the, the divine essence completely and utterly. So he has this one single thought understanding the divine essence. And so there proceeds in the mind of God this thought which perfectly manifests the divine essence. And that's the procession of what that's, what that's called is the procession of the word. And there's a nice kind of wee confluence of philosophical and theological um, sort of uh, trends here, because um, philosophically speaking, the procession of a thought in the intellect is called a word because it's on the basis of our thoughts that we're able to use language. Our language has sort of significance because of our thought. 
Um, so we, we use thought, we use language to express thought. So the words in our language are only words in a derivative sense. They only have signification in a derivative sense. Their, their primary signification comes from our thoughts. And so the procession of a thought was traditionally called the procession of the word. But then, you know, very famously, St. John, um, at the beginning of his gospel, says, you know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. So the Word in John's gospel identifies a divine person, the second person of the Trinity. So Thomas then, when he's talking about the procession of the Word in the divine intellect, he's thinking, well, look, you have this thought, or the procession of the Word, it perfectly... Um, uh, comprehends the divine essence, everything within the divine essence. So it's in the perfect image of the divine essence, yet it never leaves the divine essence. So it's not distinct from the divine essence. It's identical in nature to the divine essence, but it's distinct by relation, the way a thought is distinct from the mind that thinks it. So the word then, the procession of the word is generated. And it's, it's important that that term is generated because a thing which is generated bears a likeness to its generator. So I was generated by my parents and I have a certain likeness to my parents. Um, the word which is generated in the mind of God has a likeness to the mind which generates it precisely because it manifests the divine essence completely. So you have the word proceeding from the intellect as one thing generated from another, but technically not a thing, but a thought generated uh, by a mind. So you have that procession. And then Thomas, you know, he looks at Scripture and he says, well, look, Scripture talks about a third procession, um, or, you know, the, the, this sort of third person in the Trinity, and that's, you know, the Holy Spirit. And he thinks, well, what other sort of intellectual processions can we have? We have the procession of the Word and the intellect. Well, there's also the, the procession of the will. The procession of the will is that when the intellect understands something as good, it desires it. So the example I like to give is that I can understand that water is H2O, and that's fine. I give water is H2O. I can be a scientist working in the laboratory and see the water is H2O. But let's say if I've just, you know, sort of come in from a run or come in from a workout and I see water, I'm not just thinking, you know, ah, H2O. I'm actually thinking I'm thirsty. I would like water. So once I see there's something there and I see it as good, I desire it. And then there's a procession of the will which wants to attain that which is desirable. Now, earlier in the Summa, before he gets into the Trinity stuff, um, Aquinas, you know, he establishes that God has an intellect. He also establishes that God has a will, because when God's intellect thinks about the divine essence, it sees the divine essence as pure goodness itself. So there is a procession of the will in the divine intellect. And so when it gets to the Trinity, then Thomas says, well, look, there is this other procession, which is the procession of the will. And the procession of the will is not like the procession of the word. The word is generated and bears a likeness to that from which it is generated. But in the procession or the movement of the will, we desire something precisely because we don't possess it, because the likeness of it isn't in us. We don't have it. So I desire water when I'm thirsty because I don't have it. So if there is a movement of the will in God, within that procession of the will, there isn't the image of that from which it proceeds. Rather, the movement of the will is trying to attain something which is the good itself. So God understands his divine essence as goodness itself, and there's a movement of the will as love, as loving that divine essence. Uh, and that's typically associated with the third person of the Trinity then, the Holy Spirit. 
Now, there's more to it than that. So, so there are the processions which occur in the divine essence. They are distinct from each other. So we have distinctions by relation. So each term of those relations are distinct from each other, but none of them are distinctly related to the divine essence because none of them proceed outside the divine essence, the way an effect moves outside its cause and so is distinctly related to its cause as something other than it. None of, the, none of these processions move outside the divine essence, so they're all identical to the divine essence, but distinct from each other. And on the basis of that, then, on the basis of the relations that these different processions have to each other, Thomas sets up the, uh, the trinity of persons. So, and, and then it gets quite complicated. We can get into it if you like, but that's just kind of an overview of how that works. Right. Um, but, uh, so, it, Aquinas' account of the Trinity is not a demonstration. It's meant to, to elucidate something that he, uh, he receives based on, on revelation and, and tradition. Yeah. Um, uh, but the way that you've presented it, it, it does sort of sound like a proof. So what, what does Aquinas do to sort of uh, differentiate the two? Yeah, yeah. So um, you can um, have God as intelligent and willing. He understands his divine essence, you know, and he wills and loves the good, which, which he himself is. But that doesn't mean that there has to be distinct persons um, signified by the terms of these relations. Um, we need revelation to kind of, you know, tell us that there are these three distinct persons or personalities, um, which are all equally gods, which are all equally identical to the divine mm -hmm. essence. So what Thomas does then is he takes what, you know, we can establish about God and the first 25 or so questions of the Summa and then show how this revelation of these three divine persons fits in then with this, you know, more philosophical picture of God. Okay. That makes sense? Yeah. yeah. Now, cool. um, <clears throat> this, is, this is going back to uh, essence, right? Yeah. So human, we typically understand that human beings are social creatures or rational creatures. Mm. For what? And I, for Thomas, the one unique feature of human beings is that you know, we can grasp universals and, or we can attain universals from um, material things. Yeah. But something that I've been wondering is, what's the difference between a universal, as we would typically, because we typically we would say it's uh, trying, you know, triangularity. You know, you, you see you see this poorly poorly drawn triangle uh, on the ground, and you think, ah, oh, it's a triangle, and then you you know you mm. see the triangularity. But what's the difference between that and what a computer, what a let's say like Google's DeepMind, who's you know who can recognize what a triangle is too, and say, okay, look, this is a triangle. These are cars. They are human beings. It is is our idea of universality ultimately just pattern recognition? Hmm. Yeah, um, I think there is a certain amount of pattern recognition to universality. Um, and pa pattern recognition isn't in itself um, a sign of intelligence. And this is precisely because a dog recognizes pattern, uh, has pattern recognition and various other animals have pattern recognition. So a dog knows that when, you know, you take its lead out, it's going for a walk or when, you know, you lead it to its food, it's going for a walk. So you can have those pattern recognitions um, but that's not a sign of intelligence. But you do need pattern recognition for um, universality. Rather, what I think is essential to universality is what's called intentionality. Mm -hmm. That um, when we recognize these patterns, 
our thought then becomes focused on what the patterns signify. There's a brightness to our thoughts. So we can recognize patterns within different poorly drawn triangles. But then if we're intelligent, we can form the intention of a triangle, which abstracts from or abstracts over all the different poorly drawn triangles. And then we can simply think about what it is to be a triangle. Um, I don't think, you know, say a, a computer or an intelligent program does that. Rather, an intelligent program just kind of, you know, recognizes all the different patterns and just maps its way through the, the different patterns. Is, in terms of like hum, human beings, if we, if we were to do a thought experiment and say that um, you were slowly replaced over time with robotic parts, mm -hmm. and <clears throat> would we still consider that thing a human being in terms of its essence? Like is it essentially still a human being or is it no longer a human being? Yeah, so that's that. That's an interesting question. Um, so Thomas is a kind of a human being. It, it tracks more or less Aristotle's um, a kind of substance. So um, for Aristotle, the basic things that exist are substances. Uh, material substances are composed of matter and form. So they have some sort of material component which is formed in a certain way. Um, and there is an exhaustive distinction for Aristotle between living things and non-living things. And insofar as both living things and non-living things have matter in common, it's not on the basis of their matter that they're distinguished. Rather, it's how their matter is formed. So living things have a special kind of form by which they're alive, whereas non-living things don't have that form. And the form that living things have by which they're alive is in Greek, Aristotle used the Greek term sushi or psyche, and in Latin it's translated as anima, hence animate, animal. Um, and then that's being translated as soul. So the, the soul is the form of a living thing. And there's a kind of a hierarchy of soul. You can have living things which just uh, take in nutrition and nothing else. Then there's living things which nourish themselves, but also engage in sensory, um, engage sen in sensorily speaking with their uh, surroundings. And then there are rational living things which take in nutrition, sensation, uh, but also think. Um, so when it comes then to the replacement of body parts, it seems to me that um, at, at a certain point of the replacement of body parts in a human being, the body that you have ceases to be, uh, will, will at some point cease to be a living body and will only become a kind of a, a functioning or a machine, some sort of mechanism which is kept going um, in, in its machinery. So there, there is going to be a certain cutoff point, whether that's, you know, when the heart is replaced by something or whether the brain is replaced or the brain stem is replaced. Um, it, the, the, I think there will be a cutoff point where that body will be dead. And once that body is dead, you no longer have a living human substance. You, you've replaced it with something else. <laughs> yeah, interesting. Uh, just before we get uh, too too far off, off topic, uh, you... You do have a background in, in Kant, and I'm just wondering, like, with with the argument in Deus Ea Dissentia, um, like, how, how is that not an ontological argument? And the, the concepts mm. of being in essence that Aquinas starts off with, how does he move um, to say that, okay, these things definitely apply to reality, and they pick out um, thing, things in reality? Um, mm. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know about. Yeah, okay. So, um, 
Yes, I mean, it's a big question. Um, Thomas, you know, when he does metaphysics, he's, he's an epistemic realist. So he yeah. thinks that, yeah, he, he, he thinks that there's something about reality um, by, which, uh, by which we can have knowledge. So re- reality is such that it is knowable and we are such that we're able to engage with reality. So our knowledge is dependent on reality in some sort of way. Kant very famously um, is a non-realist. Um, he's, a, he's something of an idealist uh, when it comes to knowledge. Just how idealist he is, is um, you know, on the, under question. And some have argued that at least at the end of his life, um, he returned to, to a kind of realism. Um, but at least in the critique of pure reason, as we have it, he seems to be something of an idealist. Um, so his view is that uh, in order to have knowledge, we have to have some sort of sensory input through intuition. But that intuition in itself is unformed. It doesn't have any sort of structure to it. So we need to give it form. And we do so um, by the forms of intuition, which are space and time. So we form um, our intuitions both spatially and temporally. But all that leaves us with is a spatial temporal manifold. And so when it comes to how we understand that, then we deploy categories by means of which we understand the spatial temporal manifold. And Kant then in the transcendental deduction argues that Insofar as every thought that I have is a thought that I have, the unity of thought then will be the unity of me, of the I as a subject. And the conditions for the unity of the I are simply the categories of the understanding. So in every thought that I have, I will necessarily apply the categories of the understanding to the manifold of intuition. And so the kind of the, the, the conceptual content that we have in thinking is in a very important way derived from these categories, which are a priori in me or in any other thinking subject, and we apply them to the manifold. So there's that famous distinction then between the thing as it is in itself and in the thing as it is as thought by us. Uh, And with that distinction in place then, we can't do the sort of metaphysics that Thomas does. We can't um, argue on the basis of cause and effect, some sort of primary cause. We can't talk about the essence of real things independent of how we think about them. We can't argue the distinction between essence and existence. All we can do when we're doing metaphysics is analyze the conceptual content which is being formed by the a priori forms and categories which are latent within us. That then means that any sort of, of proof for the existence of God that we're going to have will always tacitly presuppose an ontological argument. It will always tacitly presuppose some sort of definition or some sort of concept that we have come up of the the, the most perfect being or the most real being, the ends realissimum, or whatever else. It's going to tacitly presuppose um, God as this, that, or the other. And then from that definition, argue to the existence of God. Now, needless to say, Thomas doesn't share that view, that epistemological outlook. Uh, He holds that there's something real about things and we can think through things and come to these different metaphysical categories and argue to the existence of God. So in in my opinion, the greatest challenge to Aquinas' way of thinking isn't, you know, Hume. It's not, you know, the sort of the 20th century atheist philosophers. It's not the 21st century atheist philosophers who are very interesting. It's it's Kant. It's Kant's whole way of looking at things because he just seems to attack it at the root. You know, you could, you could get something like Graham Oppey or any other, you know, sort of contemporary philosophical atheist, and he might challenge this part of the argument or that part of the argument, and, and we'll just get into a philosophical wrestling match. Mm-hmm. But somebody like Kant, 
he really just turns everything on its head and he stops the argument before it can even begin. Um, and so I think that's the greatest challenge and you know that's what we need to be engaged with. So why does Thomas have a different view of the matter? Well, there's two ways we can we can approach this. Um, you know, as a as a Thomas working in the 21st century, there's two ways we can approach it. First of all, we can look at Kant's argumentation itself and ask, are there any problems with Kant's argumentation in the critique of pure reason? And I think there are. Um, I think uh, you know Kant he presupposes. Uh, a kind of an empiricist outlook, which you know is derived somewhat from David Hume, and he's uh, addressing issues which Hume brings up in the inquiry, uh, you know, particularly you, you know the fork between relations of ideas and, and matters of fact, and he's trying to find a way of accommodating a Humean empiricism, but still allowing for some kind of metaphysics, and I think that constrains the project that Kant is doing from from the outset. Also, Kant simply doesn't even consider the possibility that what we engage with in experience is some sort of formed content, which is derived from the world. So I think there's an issue there and there's a neglected alternative. Um, but I also think that Kant is working within a, a post-Cartesian paradigm mentality. And this is something that uh, John McDowell from Pittsburgh has really kind of really brought out to me in my thinking. Um, that he's working with this view of mentality such that there's a clear division and separation of mind on the one hand or mentality or mental space on the one hand and world on the other hand. And so, uh, and we tend to think of things that way. We think of a mind like this empty sort of space and then we think of the world and then our thoughts, their thoughts about the world enter in to this mind as if it were an empty box the way you move into a house. But the world still seems very distant and the whole problem is how do we get from the mind to the world? That's the Cartesian problem. Mm -hmm. uh, well, for Descartes, it's through ideas. For Hume, it's through um, sensory impressions, giving rise to simple ideas, giving rise to more complex ideas. But it's the same problem for each. We're trying to bridge mind and world. Um, and I think Kant is working within that post-Cartesian paradigm of mentality, even though he transcends it to a great deal. Mm -hmm. So for Kant, we're not trying to cross a bridge from mind to world. We're trying to bring mind and world closer together. Now, because Kant is committed to the view that mentality is spontaneous, he wants to preserve the spontaneity, the freedom of mental mentality to think what it's what it what it likes. So he wants to preserve that private sort of space of mentality. Because he's committed to that, then he can't see that mentality is constrained by our engagement with the world. Rather, he's going to have to say that the world is constrained by mentality. So the world moves into the mental domain and is constrained by, you know, all the different conditions of mentality, the a priori forms and the categories, rather than going the other way about, which is Aquinas's view, that it's actually mentality which is constrained by the world. And the reason why Aquinas is able to do that is because he's not committed to a Cartesian view of mentality, that's some private individualized space into which thoughts enter Rather, it's just something that a rational animal is able to do and to respond to the world. And it was John McDowell in Mind and World that really kind of highlighted that for me and, you know, sort of gave me a keen insight into that. The, the idea that, that thought is responsive to the world, that the world brings conceptual capacities into operation rather than conceptual capacities already being operative prior to the world um, coming into contact with them. Do you think that uh, contemporary Anglo philosophy is still st uh, stuck within Kantian paradigms of trying to 
because we we focus so much on philosophy or language within analytic philosophy, right? You want you're trying to understand what what you mean by this. Mm. Yeah, I I do. I think after Kant, uh, the whole problem then became, you know, how do we account for for meaning? How do we account for the significance of our thoughts? And then, well, you know, one one very natural way to go about that is, well, you know, our thoughts are kind of brought out and brought to bear in language. So if we can pin down how language works and get very, very clear in how language works, then we can be clear in how thought works. And so we can get some sort of idea of how there can be meaningful content or signification to our thought. That's one way we can go about it. And that was the analytic route. Frager, Russell, Wittgenstein, and, you know, all of their sort of, you know, early work and foundations of analytic philosophy, some great work, you know, really recommend it to anybody thinking about, you know, engaging with philosophy. But then the other way was Husserl and phenomenology, that we engage with the phenomena and kind of do a logic of the phenomena and think through the phenomena. So for, forget about the noumena, forget about the thing in itself. Let's just think through the phenomena and do a logic of that and see how um, there is some sort of significance in the phenomena. And then that gives birth to a whole tradition, which, you know, it has, I think, Martin Heidegger at its apex, you know, probably the most interesting philosopher of the 20th century. Um, and so that, so, so philosophy sort of splits into those two, two traditions. And I think um, a lot of Anglophone philosophy, Anglo-American philosophy, is very much indebted to that analytic way of thinking. We need to pin down very precisely and very specifically what we mean by language. Otherwise, we can't get clear on the signification of our thought. Um, and that's fair enough. You know, philosophers do need to be precise. Aristotle, very precise. Thomas, very precise. But what you find in thinkers like Aristotle, Aquinas, the scholastics, and even in somebody like Plato, is that there, there's a sensitivity for what, uh, what's called analogy or uh, proportionality, or what uh, another Irish thinker, William Desmond, calls plurivocity of meaning. That meanings can be analogical and can have different senses and different significations um, uh, depending on how you use them. And Anglo-American philosophy doesn't seem to leave an awful lot of room for analogy or proportionality. You, you either have pure univocity or you have equivocity. There's, there's no in-between. There's no mixture of the two. So there's no logic of analogy. The only sorts of thinkers that I can see allowing for a kind of an analogical thinking or a plurivocal thinking are those who um, have either gone beyond um, Kantian ways of thinking, such as uh, Peter Strawson, which is kind of surprising because Strawson was, you know, a paradigmatic, you know, Kantian philosopher. But I think that he himself went beyond um, uh, Kant and Kantian thinking and allowed a certain influence of ordinary language philosophy in, which, it, which gave him a sensitivity to the different ways in which terms can be used within discourse. So there are those sorts of thinkers, but also those who are influenced by the Hegelian tradition, whereby you have neither univocity, pure univocity, nor pure aquivocity. You can have some kind of plurivocity to meaning. And so that gets us beyond these very constrained discussions within analytic philosophy of kneeling down our terms as precisely as possible. Have you ever, have you ever um, spoken with uh, Jim Madden before? Um, I actually... I think he might have reviewed one of my pieces for the Thomists on John, John McDowell 
Um, I remember I published a piece in the Thomist on John McDowell, and I, I think I remember being in touch with Jim Madden afterwards. So he might have actually reviewed that piece. Okay. Um, of course, I didn't know it at the time, but it might have been after. But I, I have spoke with Jim Madden, and I think I think he gave a podcast on the Thomistic Institute, um, which which I listened to in one of my you know sort of drives. Um, so I have been in touch with him, but you know just you know sporadically. Yeah, is he a good guy? He's good. I mean, he's a great guy. We've had him on uh, twice now, twice, right, yeah. And because uh-huh. he's he's heavily influenced by um, Heidegger, Heidegger. Mm. and he was telling us that he he was coming back to Heidegger, and so it's it's kind of, it's very interesting to have this like um, you know Jim who's influenced by uh, Thomas and also Heidegger, mm. you know, discussing like mind, what what the mind is. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I mean, I think C for uh, philosophy of mind, for, for epistemology, I think Heidegger is tremendously interesting, mm-hmm. especially that distinction of his between uh, the, the, the present at hand and the ready to hand, that we, we, we begin uh, in the world and we begin in the middle of things and our immediate relation to things is through instrumentality, through readiness to hand. And it's once those instruments lose their instrumentality that we gain some sort of epistemic distance and they're they're present to hand then, they're present to us as objects. So we start with practical attitude or practicality in the world. And then it's only when we get an epistemic distance that we have, you know, the the theoretical um, sort of attitude towards the world. And Heidegger is very explicit in criticizing Descartes on that, that, you know, Descartes just got that the wrong way around. Descartes thought it was the, the sort of the present to hand, the, the theoretical attitude, which comes first and then the practical comes after. But Heidegger says, no, it's primarily in the practical. Uh, and so I, I think Heidegger is tremendously important in that respect. And, and even the philosopher I mentioned, John McDowell, there's a really famous discussion he had with Dreyfus, Hubert Dreyfus, who wrote a commentary on Heidegger's being in time, where the two of them talk about tacit knowledge, this idea of tacit knowledge, a, a kind of awareness or a know-how to do things. Um, uh, and whether or not such tacit knowledge is conceptual. Uh, and McDowell argues that um, it, it is conceptual. There, there is concept, I don't want to misrepresent him, but there is, there, there is conceptuality to tacit knowledge, but it's like a tacit conceptuality. So the example is two chess players playing a game of speed. Yes, they're not really thinking, they're just doing. But if you stop them and you ask the player, well, what are you doing? He says, well, I'm moving the knight, I'm moving the queen, I'm doing this. Um, so that there, there is some sort of conceptual content to tacit knowledge. And, um, and, and, and that squares, I think, with, you know, the, the Heideggerian outlook, which ultimately, I think, um, can be found in Thomas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think Heidegger is quite helpful for uh, bringing back an, an integration of, of philosophy with patterns of life. Yeah. Yeah. So um, so that's something that we've had quite a bit of a, dis- a discussion with Jim Madden about. Um, so he he's big on integrating uh, his his martial arts with his his philosophy. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. I'm just wondering. So you're you know you you're a practitioner of martial arts and a third order Dominican. So maybe yeah. tell us a bit about how that first of all first of what is a third order Dominican for anyone who doesn't know? How yeah. does one become a third order Dominican? Yeah, so um, so the Dominicans, so Aquinas was famously a Dominican. Um, the, the Dominicans are called the Order of Preachers. Their founder was St. Dominic, um, so they're, they're known by that popular name, the, the, the Dominicans. And St. Dominic, he was, um, he was he was a young man sort of from Spain, from Calaruega in Spain, 
uh, in the sort of the late 12th century and into the early 13th century. And the church at the time was in an awful state, really, really bad state, um, a lot of corruption, you know, very poor preaching. And he was in France and, he, you know, he was a young churchman, he was a cleric and he was in France. And he saw what was, it was called the Albigensian heresy. Uh, and the Albigensian heresy, it's, it's like a form of Manichaeism, it's a form of Gnosticism, and it's an affirmation of uh, the goodness of the soul or the spirit and the badness of the body. Uh, and so it's a kind of a cosmic dualism that there is, you know, some sort of evil to nature, which is material and bodily, but there's also some goodness to creation, which is the spirit. And then depending on how exotic it gets, you know, there's an evil God, which causes the evil side and a good God, which causes the good side. Um, and that was the Albigensian heresy. And um, uh, St. Dominic saw this and he realized that what the problem was, it was twofold. People were being drawn to this heresy because the heretics, uh, the leaders of the, the, the heretical sects, they, um, they were very intelligent and they were able to preach quite well. They were able to put across their positions with good arguments and be quite compelling. And they also practiced a very strict form of life, a very ascetic, you know, very pure form of life, which um, kind of, you know, led the people to believe, well, you know, they're practicing what they preach. Um, so, you know, maybe there's something to this. Whereas the, the preachers on the Catholic side were either not very good, not very compelling, not very intelligent, or they weren't really practicing what they preached. Mm. So they weren't being like, you know, they weren't being more Christ-like. They weren't being like the apostles, the, the, the apostolic preachers. So Dominic realized that what he needed to do was to be more like an apostle, to engage in apostolic preaching. So to live the life of absolute poverty, the mendicant life, and to basically go to all these different positions, uh, places uh, where these heresies were flourishing and to preach the gospel uh, and to preach the gospel with the best sort of knowledge that one could have. Um, very quickly, um, the, the, the order yeah, took off and it took off in uh, two particular sort of, you know, um, divisions. On the one hand, you had the friars, and they, they were the preachers. They're the ones that went out and preached from the pulpit, from the confession box, and literally to people um, in the streets within the, the secular world. But also, there were a lot of women, some of them, you know, former heretics themselves, um, who had kind of come round to Dominic's preaching, and he didn't know what to do with them. So he decided to lock them up in a convent in Pruy. Um, and he, he asked these women... Uh, to pray to pray for him, to pray for him and his friars for what they're doing. Because if you think about a life of preaching, you don't always have the time for that really strict, austere prayer life that you do have in a monastery. Let's say you're out there doing the job of preaching, so you, you just have to pray when you can. And maybe that's you know not always, maybe you don't always get the chance to do that. The task of the friars is, was to preach. That, that's what their task was. And, you know, everything was ordered to that. So we asked these women to pray for them. And so what what happened then is there was developed the, the, the section of the order, which was the, the contemplative nuns. So there were these nuns, um, they kind of, you know, they lived a life of contemplation and they did, their, their, their sole function was to pray for the mission of the order, which is the mission of preaching. Um, so that when the friars who, who can't pray as intensely as somebody in the contemplative life can, they can still participate in the graces um, of the nuns' prayers. But there was also another branch of the order, which very quickly took off. 
and that was um, people who were living in the secular world. So they were not uh, they were not ordained, they were not clerics, um, they were not contemplative nuns, but they were living in the secular world. And they felt that they could serve the mission of the church by, you know, practicing the mission of the order, which was the mission to preach. Because sometimes people in the secular world are able to preach and are able to get things across to people um, where clerics just can't. And so there was established what was called the Third Order. The Third Order Dominicans then are more commonly known as lay Dominicans. So they're laity. They're not ordained. And they're um, a branch of the order, which goes right back to the 13th century. Famously, um, St. Catherine of Siena um, was a Third Order Dominican. And they engage in the mission of the order, the charism of the order, to preach um, uh, for the salvation of souls. Um, and so I'm a Third Order Dominican. So my, uh, as a member of the, 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 the order of preachers, um, the particular charism by which, you know, I try to strive for perfection and thus for the kingdom of God is uh, to preach the gospel uh, to wh whomever I can in whatever way that I can. Um, and so that, that, that's my way then to the, how the charisms of religious orders work. So that, that, that's my way then to perfection. So the Dominican order is an order which was, it was the first one that was set up, not primarily for the perfection of its members, but primarily for the salvation of those who aren't its members. And so its members then achieve their own perfection by working for the perfection of others. And so that, that, that's what I do as a third order Dominican in whatever way I can. Obviously being an academic philosopher, you know, there's quite clear, the, the, the way in which I can preach, there's a quite clear sort of pathway in which I can preach because I can, you know, argue for the existence of God, the truths of the faith, all that sort of stuff. Um, so yeah, um, one becomes a third order Dominican. And in my case, I traveled to Lithuania to teach a, at a summer school on Thomas Aquinas. And um, this was run by the third order Dominicans. And I thought this was awesome. I kind of knew who the Dominicans were. Um, I obviously, I knew Thomas and Albert the Great, but I only knew them as great theologians who were Dominicans. I never knew them as Dominicans who were great theologians. Mm -hmm. So I, when I got back to Ireland, uh, back to Belfast, I, um, I thought I'd like to know more about this. I'd maybe like to become one. So I, I did a quick Google search and found that there were lay Dominicans in Ireland. And so I contacted their headquarters down in Dublin, uh, which is about 100 miles south of Belfast. Uh, and they told me that there are lay Dominicans in Belfast. And interestingly, where I live in Belfast, there is a school, a, um, uh, you guys will call it a high school, you know, we just call it a grammar school, uh, called St. Dominic's in Belfast, very, very famous, um, uh, very, you know, good uh, school in, in, in West Belfast, where I'm from, uh, called St. Dominic's, which, which had Dominican sisters, apostolic sisters there. Uh, and they had a Dominican chapter there. So I approached those and start, started attending meetings, um, started, you know, attend what were called chapter meetings where we would pray, where we would have discussion, talk about, you know, the, uh, the kind of, you know, the, the, the mission to preach. And one thing led to another. I, I was received and I, um, and when you're received, you do your novitiate for a year. And then I made um, solemn profession, lifetime profession as a third order Dominican. So um, that's how one becomes third order Dominican. Do you get a Do you get a cool relic for becoming a third order Dominican? Um, you don't get one, um, but being in the Dominican order, you do you do get your hands on cool relics from time to time. So uh, when I was examined for my uh, doctoral uh, thesis, so I, I was already a Dominican by this stage, and I was examined in two thousand eleven 
on January 28th, which was the Feast of St. Thomas Aquinas, uh, examined by John Haldian. Um, one of my uh, sort of Dominican, one of the Dominican sisters knew that this was happening and was praying for me. And she, she, she called to my home a few days before and she gave me a relic of St. Dominic, a relic of Thomas Aquinas and a relic of St. Catherine. What? So, oh. <laughs> so I was sitting there in my doctoral defense with a piece of St. Thomas Aquinas, a bone of St. Thomas Aquinas in my pocket, as well as St. Dominic and St. Catherine. So they were, they were first class relics. Um, and it went well for me, so I passed. Okay, because yeah. there, there are different classes, right? The first, there's like first, second, third, uh, yeah, one, even. Yeah, I think there's only first, second, and third class relics. Uh, I know a first class relic is an actual piece of the saint in question. I'm not too sure about second class. Third class relic is something that the saint has touched, or else second class is something that the saint has touched, and third class is something that was touched by something that the saint has touched. Mm. So, I'm not too sure of the degrees there, but first class is definitely a piece of the saint in question. Right. Mm. Yeah. So that's 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 the late Dominican stuff then. Um, did you ask about the martial arts stuff? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, uh, I'm a martial artist. Um, it's something that came too late in life. I'm sorry to say. You know, I wish I had started it earlier. Um, my twenties were spent in books and in libraries. Um, and so very little time, you know, I regret it now. Well, I don't regret it because I am where I am now because of it. But um, in my 20s, it was just, you know, just all in books completely. And I, di I didn't have a scholarship or anything for any of my studies. So I worked all the way through um, all my degrees, um, so including the doctorate. Sorry? You worked full time and you were doing full time work as, uh, studies as well? Yeah, yeah. But uh, the job I had um, when I was doing the doctorate, it was, it was a great job for, for doing doctoral studies because I was a car park attendant. The car park would fill up in the morning and then I was left to, to read my books and type on my laptop and stuff. So I did, I did that for the first few years and then I started adjuncting and teaching and I got enough of that where I could do that and then finish up my doctoral studies. That was 2007 I started doing uh, the teaching. Um, but so, so yeah, so I was doing all of that through my 20s. And then when I graduated, you know, I was, just, I was just working, working, working to kind of get publications out and trying to get myself an academic position. Um, just you know, job market being what it is at the time. And, you know, also married with children. My, my first child came along at the start of the doctorate, my second at the end of the doctorate. Um, I got married when I was 22, still married. So, <laughs> um, so I never really... Um, felt kind of you know motivated to sort of get into martial arts or you know get in, get into training in any sort of way but I was always a very active person and as a child I was always very active and I was sent to the typical martial arts you know karate and stuff as, as a kid but it was when I was in my early 30s and things had got a wee bit more stable and I had a wee bit more time and I, you know and I felt you know I'd maybe like to do this I, I had two very good friends both of whom were um, you know jiu-jitsu black belts um, and various other martial arts as well, black belts. And they had really, they really inspired me. Um, and so I just thought, well, you know, I'd really love to do a martial art. And if there's any martial art that one should do, you know, well, it's, it's Kung Fu. You know, it's just got that. Sorry? Bruce Lee. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, Bruce Lee, Jet Lee, Donnie Yen, oh, Jackie yes. Chan. Um, just all of those guys, Kung Fu just has that mystique, that mysticism about it. And it's, it's kind of the martial art, you know, 
I mean, some some people diss it, saying it's all just showboating and stuff like that. Um, well, well, the kung fu I learn isn't just showboating. You know, it's got a very practical purpose. You learn like old school kung fu because old school kung fu is actually way more terrifying than contemporary um, kung fu that you learn here, where a thirteen-year-old gets a black belt. Yeah. Three years. Yeah. Well, cer- certainly at our kung fu school, um, the instructor, well, he's just he's just a badass, and um, you know he. He had, you know, he trained for months at a time in China at the Shaolin Temple, and the sort of stuff that he was teaching, it, it can be very graceful and stuff. But I mean, there's other stuff that he's teaching, which which is very hard. Which you can see that, you know, if you were to apply that in a street fight, you know, you, you could just incapacitate an opponent completely. It's it's not a sport like MMA, you know, where there's a referee there to kind of, you know stop things you know you're there to kind of end the fight as quickly as it starts and you could tell with the way you know the things that he was teaching us that you know it is a very kind of hands-on gritty sort of martial art and you know and, and he's got an MMA background he trains MMA as well and when I started training MMA for a bit I could see that the Kung Fu had a very practical application and you know Bruce Lee is one of his heroes and so I mean Bruce Lee always felt that Kung Fu needs to have that practical application so I, I started training in that. I, I, found, I found this Kung Fu school um, kind of in close to Belfast in Northern Ireland. And that was, oh, that was about four years ago now. And I've been doing that ever since. And um, after a couple of years of doing that, I started going to the CMMMA club that um, my uh, Kung Fu master uh, goes to. And I picked up some, you know, sort of good skills, you know, good sort of fighting experience with that. Um, but um, what, what, what had happened is I was actually, I, I was scheduled to do a charity fight with this club. And then I applied for a job just before Christmas. Yeah. So I was scheduled to do this MMA, just charity fight, amateur fight. And then I applied for a job uh, as a lecturer in theology just before Christmas, which would have taken me to the other side of the country. So a four hour drive away. And so I'm scheduled to do this fight. I've applied for this job. And I, obviously I was hoping I was going to get the job as a lecturer in theology. Um, but part of me was kind of thinking, you know, well, I would kind of love to stay in Belfast and keep up with the MMA and all. But uh, I got the job, so I had to pull out of this charity fight and I had to stop training at the MMA club in Belfast. Mm-hmm. I found another MMA club in this place where I went in Limerick. Um, and, and I trained there for a while. And then I got, I got another job teaching philosophy where I'm at now in Maynooth, which is just outside of Dublin. And in Maynooth, then, I found a martial arts academy which teaches Brazilian jiu-jitsu and Wing Chun Kung Fu. So at the minute, what I'm training in, I'm doing the traditional Shaolin Kung Fu in Belfast. And then where I work down in Maynooth, during the week, I'm doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu and Wing Chun Kung Fu. So there's a mixture of martial arts, but it's not mixed martial arts. Right. So, do you find that when you... Uh, do you find training any the your jiu-jitsu, Wing Chun, and... Um, the, the what is it kung fu that you're training? Do you yep. find that applicable into the into your daily life? Mm, yeah, I think so. There's something about um, the integration of mind and body in martial arts, and especially in kung fu, that um, carries over into philosophy. I think um, the ancient philosophers and the Roman philosophers they were very much. Um, interested in this idea of a healthy mind and a healthy body, the unity of mind and body. There's no Cartesian dualism about it. Um, and when you do Kung Fu, you quickly realize that we can't be Cartesians um, with things that, 
um, your, your whole proprioceptive system and your proprioceptive awareness and your tacit knowledge, which is built into you when you repeat forms hundreds of times or when you learn how to kick and punch and do combinations hundreds of times, it becomes inbuilt and ingrained. Um, and so the actual sort of philosophical, my, my way of thinking philosophically sits quite naturally with what the martial arts brings out in me. And then just as a practice in daily life, it just, it disciplines you so much and gives you an outlook on life. Uh, um, it, it takes away sort of anxiety. It takes away, you know, frustration, fuzzy headedness when you've been sitting, say, reading Kant or Heidegger or whoever, you know, do, being able to train martial arts is, is a great way, great, great stress relief. Mm-hmm. And also it's probably the be- best mental health sort of boost known to man, I think, you know, better than any sort of medications or therapy, you know, just doing martial arts, you know, is one of, one of the best mental health things you could do. Oh, I think with you 100%. I found Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu at, at, at my lowest point and it's, it's kept me, it's, you know, it's been, it's been a blessing. That's the, this is the most appropriate time to use that word blessing uh, mm. to do Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And I've been trying to convince Amos yeah, <laughs> over over these many years to start doing uh, any sort of martial arts, especially jujitsu, because I'm I, I I because I train in it and I'm and I favor jujitsu a bit more because I'm you know I'm, I'm I, I I used to be smaller. I used to be 145 pounds when I started training, mm. and I was generally always the smallest guy in the uh, in the gym. But you know I like last year I just. You know, I wanted to gain weight, especially because, you know, it's one thing to train martial arts and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. It's obviously a systematic approach to grappling on the ground. Mm. Uh, but there is an extent to which once you're fighting someone who's uh, 280 to 200, uh, 300 pounds, you know, mm. after a certain point, certain things don't work anymore. You yeah. Know, leverages yeah. don't work. <laughs> kind of yeah. need strength. And so when mm-hmm. I put on my weight, I went up to 175 145 right. and I was like this is you know this is this is I probably need to put maybe like 20 more pounds to feel comfortable but yeah 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 I, I agree entirely I, I mean in my martial arts kind of you know sort of training um I felt you know I was just way too skinny I wasn't you know just big enough for it and there is as you say a certain amount of muscle mass that you do need in order to um train well and in order to fight well and like for instance in mma training you know during during our rolling they teach you all the different moves and leverages you know to get out of something but i'm 75 kilograms which is about i think multiplied by 2.2 it's coming close to 160 pounds okay. and I'm, I'm about there um that, 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 that's what I weigh and I'm about six foot six one um but I mean I've had guys you know who are about 200 pounds and they just sit on you and no matter how you know all your different moves and techniques that you know they go out the window if you just can't get this big guy off you so I mean uh, you know I've been sort of really keen to gain weight a lot in the last few years I, I did the start I do I did I still do the starting strength program I've taken a wee bit of a break from strength training now and moved on to hypertrophy but I did that whole gallon of milk a day diet and everything to, to put weight on um, I only did that for you know uh, just over a month um, How's that? Weight, like it within a month uh, put on nearly about five kilos so what? Um, but I mean we're talking about four liters of whole milk a day <laughs> Yeah, you, you can't keep that up, you know. I mean, you know, I, I I've got a weak stomach as well, so that's what I was going to ask you. I was going to ask you how your stomach was after a month of. <sighs> no, 
you're constantly feeling full and you move around and you're sometimes you're just having to stop yourself from being sick you know but i mean that that that's weight gain that's you know how the power lifters put on weight yeah do you yeah did you um um so jim jim madden Oh, yeah, you, yeah. You mentioned so Jim in in the previous podcast, the last one that he did, he was telling us that he used to weigh three hundred pounds, right? Three hundred pounds, and okay. it was through you know after his first kid that he wanted to really start you know working on his on his uh in, on his life and integrating philosophy, and now he's do- he's down to like one eighty five, which is insane. Like three hundred. That's a lot. It's like it's crazy amount of weight, but um, mm-hmm. he has this book. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It's, a, it's tactical barbell, and I know I think if I remember correctly, you were you were on another podcast talking about how you do strength training, and you were you started it through reading. I forget what the book was called. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was uh, Starting Strength by Mark Ripito. Okay. And yeah. So I was curious to know what that book was about because the, the, Jim recommended a book that him and Kay Black, who was a who's like a someone, it's a secret. Mm-hmm person that nobody knows who he is but um mm-hmm. but the tactical barbell it's basically how to put on weight yeah you know in in a weight and strength in the shortest period possible yeah yeah um the uh the the, the starting strength one it sounds like it's quite similar to the starting strength one by mark ripito uh the starting strength one is how to build strength as quickly as possible so how to build as much strength in as short as time as possible. And what it does is it, it's basically, it teaches you how to power lift and it uses the three big moves in power lifting, the squat, the deadlift and the bench press. So, and it, it builds its program around those three lifts, squat, deadlift and bench press. You train three days a week, Monday, Wednesday and Friday, let's say. Um, Monday, Wednesday and Friday, you train the squat. So you squat, every, every workout you squat. Um, and then in alternating workouts, you'll do the bench press um, or the, uh, the, the, what do you call it, the, the military press, the shoulder press. Mm-hmm. So you alternate the bench press or the, the military press. Uh, and then one day a week, you'll do the deadlift. Um, so he's very keen that, Mark Ripto is very keen that you don't overtrain the deadlift. And then as you progress a wee bit, you can substitute the deadlift with the, the power clean to build up a bit of kind of, you know, speed. Um, and you do that, that that's the uh, that, that's the program and every workout you add weight to the bar uh, for every lift you add weight to the bar until you can't anymore until you start to plateau and then you start to play around with things once you start to plateau but you just const- keep constantly adding more and more weight um, until you reach that plateau and one of the things that you have to do is you, you need to eat thousands of calories over your maintenance so if I, my maintenance would maybe be about 2,000 calories, probably less, um, but in and around 2,000 calories. So I need to be eating at least three and a half to 4,000 calories, which is the, the gallon of milk a day diet. You know, milk just kind of lets you put on, get, get in a lot of calories on top of already what you're eating. Um, so there's all these wee tricks of the trade for doing that, but the diet is a big thing with that program. So... You're, you're going to have to say goodbye to your ad for a while just as you, you know, just bulk up and build as much strength as possible. So that's the starting strength program. It is. When I was putting on weight last year, um, and I don't rec- recommend this to anyone, this this is not scientifically tested at all. This is just tested on me. What I did yeah. was before when I used to train, I would, you know, I would do like reps, you know, 10 reps, 
uh, another 10 reps and then 15 reps, you know, power or like five if it's very heavy. So instead what I did was I wanted to see if, if I could do, be in the gym for a short amount of time, but put on more weight and more strength. So what I would do, mm. I would max out every time. So yeah. Try to get the heaviest one and I would max out. And I hadn't read anyone before. So I just thought, okay, I'm sure this is possible. You know, mm-hmm. you stress test, your, you stress your body. And so the next time you think, okay, you know, IG mm. is going to screw us over. So we better prepare. And yeah. Jim in, in the book, The Tactical Barber, it was very similar to that. And now you're saying this. So it, so it, it is, I guess it, it is common within the bodybuilding world to, to do something like that. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, just what you're saying about maxing out, I mean, that's something that I started doing as well because on the, um, the starting strength program, you do three sets of five for every lift, um, except for the deadlift where you do one set of five. Um, and once I started to plateau and, you know, started tweaking things and things didn't work, I still wanted to get my 15 reps at a really heavy weight. But what I started doing then was the five, four, three, two, one rep range. So you start with five reps and then you add, you know, weight and you do four and then you add weights and you do three, two, one. So you're ending up, you know, kind of pushing the max for that one rep. And so I was kind of, my squat was sort of sticking because I'm such a tall guy. My squat is just terrible. Um, my, my deadlift, you know, kind of moved up pretty well, but my squat just awful. Um, so my squat was sort of maxing out in and around 100, 102 kilograms. But once I started doing the, the five, four, three, two, one rep range, I started getting it up higher, close to, you know, 115. So I was able to kind of just push it that wee bit more without having to change my diet drastically. Yeah. That's crazy. Amos, do you have anything you want to, anything else you want to ask Gavin? Uh, no, but yeah, thank you for coming on the podcast. It's been great talking to you. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's always, it's, it's good crack. Um, are you, do you know that word crack? The Irish people, we use that yeah. a lot. Oh, you know the crack, right. Yeah. Okay. I used that on an American colleague once. I sat down next, next to him and I asked, did he have any crack? And yeah, he, he didn't understand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think it means something a bit different down there. Yeah, yeah well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, so, so where are you guys? You, you guys are in Canada? Yeah. 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 And... Uh, so IJ's I in Ottawa, and I'm uh, a town just a bit south of Ottawa called Kingston. Kingston, right. Yeah. right. So we're right in the middle of Canada. Uh, right. Ottawa is the capital. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, is there, do you have social media that uh, listeners could follow? Um, where can they find you? Do you have a website? Yeah, so um, I'm on Facebook. Um, anybody that can add me on Facebook, you know, check me out on Facebook. Um, I'm easily recognizable on Facebook. I look the least like a philosopher, you can imagine. Um, so, yeah, I'm on Facebook. Uh, I'm also on Twitter. I don't really use Twitter an awful lot. I kind of just put up, you know, kind of, you know, inspiring quotes or whatever on Twitter, but uh, I'm on Twitter. Um, you can go to my website on St. Patrick's College Maynooth, um, just, just my staff page on St. Patrick's College Maynooth. You get my email address, my details. Um, I kind of, you know, have entered into the world of blogging with the Bearded Thomist blog. Um, I haven't really put up an awful lot of content just with, you know, the, the upheaval and the move to online teaching. I've just been a bit busy with that. Um, it's not my primary concern, but, you know, I, I will start, you know, putting up more and more content. So I do that. Yeah, so a- any one of those sorts of ways you can, you know, get in contact with me and, you know, it's no problem at all. Um, and uh, I should say we, we have a big conference coming up at St. Patrick's College, Maynooth. We have a whole big list of speakers, I think about 20 international speakers, including mm-hmm. Elnor Stump, Rome Williams, David Bentley Hart, people like that. So 
uh, William Desmond, Julie Klima, John Nassis, all those guys. So yeah, yeah, check it out. Um, you know, early bird registration is open, and anybody wants to come to Ireland, you come over, and we can, you know, do some philosophy together. We can have drinks, we can party, you know, we can train together. <laughs> Yeah, I, I was looking into it. I think it'd be a good thing to do. We'll have to see yeah. with uh, everything going on with COVID. But yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Well, thank you so much. No, yeah. not at all. It was great crack. Thank you.